Teacher, author, and founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal, Parker Palmer, describes how a circle of trust might help a person know what his or her soul is trying to say, especially when that person is facing a decision or needs to sort out what matters when coming upon a life crossroad. Palmer relates the story of how one such person reached a point of clarity in such a setting. During a circle of trust retreat, a man who had spent a decade in the Department of Agriculture following 25 years of farming in northeastern Iowa spoke anxiously about a policy description he had to make. The policy was controversial because it pitted increased crop yield against topsoil preservation. The man said, my farmer's heart knows what I need to do but doing it will get me in trouble with my superior. As the retreat ended, this man said he now knew that he needed to settle the issue in favor of his farmer's heart. Someone then asked him, how will you respond to your boss? It won't be easy, but during my time in this circle, I've understood something important. I don't report to my boss. I report to the land. I love that story. I love how the man knew what the answer was, but didn't know how to articulate it until his inner voice gave him the words. Anyone who has ever faced a difficult decision knows what it means to reach that kind of unquestionable resolve, where what is primary becomes the single focus and everything else is a blur or secondary to what matters. Palmer went on to say, what this man heard from his heart did not give him practical strategies and tactics to negotiate the complexities that lay ahead, but it gave him solid ground on which to take the next steps. When it comes to the church as a community of Christ followers, I think many things compete for this place of priority and emphasis. The appeal of the physical structure the attraction and relevance of the church's programs, the presentation of worship, the sound of its music, the popularity of its pastor, its reflection of traditional values, its involvement in and contribution to the local community, its engagement in global mission, or its faithfulness to scripture. In the passage we are about to hear read for us, Jesus gives his followers specific instructions about what they are to do after he physically departs from them. Elsewhere, Jesus indicated that they would receive the Holy Spirit to help them recall what he has taught them and to empower them to be his witnesses in the world. When we're tempted to speak of Christian faith as merely a belief system or religious identification, the author of the book of James, which is our second reading, reminds us that true faith is active and demonstrated in word and deed. Let us now turn our attention to these two texts as Leah Huber reads for us.
Our first reading is from the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Following his resurrection from the grave, Jesus charges his followers with these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Our second reading is from the letter of James, chapter 2, verses 14 to 24. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. The word of the Lord. The most important question church leaders should ask on a recurring basis is this. How are we doing at teaching and training people, young and old, to live according to the life and teachings of Jesus? Everything else is secondary to this. The church at large has given attention to the great commission Jesus gave to his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But as Dallas Willard has pointed out, we have struggled with what he termed the great omission, that is, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. Willard says we have been haphazard in how we go about discipling children and youth with solid, mature faith. We hire competent and devoted staff and expect them, along with their volunteer recruits, to get the job done. But it simply isn't enough. It takes a whole lot more, from parents to Sunday school teachers to coaches to mentors and adult friends who help make a significant impact in the life of a single young person over a consistent period of time. I would add that the same lack of teaching and training is true for adults as well. Well, what is a disciple? The New Testament speaks of a disciple as a student, someone who follows Jesus and learns from his teaching and behavior. I like the word image chosen by Eugene Peterson and Alice Willard as that of an apprentice someone who is in a learning, growing relationship with Jesus, trying to put into practice how Jesus lived and what he taught 
with the intent of becoming like him. Apprentice implies teaching and training. I think the church has always made teaching an integral part of its existence, but we have not been good at training people how to live and love like Jesus. Training has to do with hands-on practical steps of learning something new. It entails receiving instructions of how to do something, watching someone skillful do it and model it, followed by the opportunity to do it ourselves, then receiving feedback on how we did. It is a process of experimentation or trial and error with correction and repetition built in until it becomes part of us. While in seminary, I did an internship at Fresno First Presbyterian Church. I was not Presbyterian at the time, but I was drawn to this church because it offered a lay ministry training program. I was one of 20 college and career age young people who worked over the summer engaged in every aspect of the church's ministry. All 20 of us were given room and board in a church member's home. Half of us worked full-time at the church and the other half found part-time work in the community. The most important aspect of this program was the life experience we shared with church members and what we learned from one another about day-to-day -day living of our faith. As one of two seminary interns, I had been invited to live with the lead pastor's family, Paul and Rosemary Pearson. They had four grown children, two of whom lived at home that summer. Being part of their family helped me see firsthand what a pastor's life was like. But one of my most memorable training experiences came when a lay leader suggested that Paul Pearson take me with him on a weekend missions conference being held in the Bay Area. This phrase, take someone with you, was an important and integral feature of how we learned that summer. Dr. Pearson later revealed to me how he was reluctant to bring me along because he thought, first of all, I would be bored. And then he was also concerned for the fact that he was gonna give the same message in three different settings. And that he was not, and he was actually looking forward to some alone time. However, those three days together meant the world to me. I learned how Dr. Pearson constructed his messages. I watched him interact with people up close. And he invited me to share my short-term mission experience in one of the meetings we attended. And then on the way home, he gave me personal feedback of how he saw me functioning in ministry in the church that summer. I have sat, sat through countless hours of Christian teaching, but the amount of training I have received has paled in comparison, and nearly all of these training opportunities I have had to pursue on my own. If we as a church are going to take seriously Jesus' command to make disciples, then we must combine teaching with training. This is why I like the statement, the Christian faith is better caught than taught. Faith is not a matter of mental assent or subscribing to a belief system, 
but a relational commitment to Jesus evidenced in action. A compartmentalizing of faith is what the author of James addresses when he says, faith without deeds is dead. He illustrates what he means by pointing to the example of Abraham, by saying Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. His faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. If I were starting out my career as a pastor all over again, it is this practical and pragmatic follow-through of faith development that I would give my, more of my attention to and my time. Visiting people in their workplace and asking how their faith is being lived out there. Listening to when people describe their home life and how they sensed God working in those relationships. In daily interactions with members and friends, I would ask, what lessons is Jesus teaching you at this time in your life? I would increase invitations for members and friends to share their profile of faith as part of our worship. I would try to lead less and invite others to lead more. I would take time to listen and observe and share my feedback and encouragement. For someone to learn the way of Jesus as an apprentice requires a mutual commitment on the part of the church and the individual. The church has to make teaching and training primary to its work, but the motivation to learn has to be intentional on the part of the individual. This mutual commitment poses a challenge for each party. For the would-be disciple or apprentice, it requires obedience and discipline. In a consumer culture where, where we expect church to be another service provider to meet our needs and wants rather than challenge our way of life, this poses a problem. Franciscan friar and author of numerous books on the Christian life, Richard Rohr says, It has always been much easier to worship Jesus than to follow him because we think worship is rather harmless and without risk. But following Jesus changes everything. To apprentice ourselves to Jesus may require courage to change our ways in order to grow deeper and stronger in our faith. John Stott observes that the most common way we avoid this serious and courageous level of discipleship is to be selective choosing those areas in which commitment suits us and staying away from those areas in which it will be costly. We might have to ask ourselves, what are the areas of Christian practice that might require spiritual discipline and courage for me to grow deeper? Asking a small group or a community of committed Christian friends to hold me accountable moving outside my comfort zone in order to risk being more vulnerable, facing how God might want to change my heart related to people I dislike or avoid or have prejudice toward, consciously attempting to live more in alignment with kingdom values rather than conform to the cultural norms, and becoming more generous with my time and resources. 
developing a weekly practice of servanthood and what it means to live for others. The challenge for the church in this equation is that we have so few models or methods or programs that effectively serve to help someone learn this way of Jesus. The best we have found is what we call apprentice immersion, which is led and facilitated by our director of discipleship, Ali Shoulders. This 30-week learning commitment is done in community as a cohort of shared reading, interacting, daily practices, and relationship building. The appeal of this approach is that it doesn't focus on gathering information, but more on processing what it means to be loved by God, what it means to live a life of grace, and what Christian community looks like and how our faith requires us to prioritize life choices. Being an apprentice is a lifelong process of learning and relearning with community, support, and encouragement all along the way. As a church, we recognize that people learn in a variety of ways. So as part of our teaching and training, we mix in discussions of cinema and literature. We enlarge our imaginations and creativity with fine art and musical arts. We engage in community service to learn from populations whose lack of resources make them more dependent on God than we might ever experience on our own. And we form bonds with missionaries who cross cultural barriers to communicate the gospel message and by their life challenge our own in doing the same wherever God leads us. In all the ways we might seek to learn what it means to be a disciple or contribute to helping someone learn how to be one, we need to emphasize that it is a lifelong dynamic relationship of learning to trust the living God and not a matter of ritual or routine. As with all other meaningful relationships, our faith life in Christ involves risk and growth misunderstanding and renewal, discovery and relearning. It's not a matter of imitation as reflected in the question, what would Jesus do? But more a matter of reaching a level of maturity to ask, what would Jesus have me do? Then with courage and commitment, put it into action. May we be such a community where people know they can come and learn of Jesus. Amen.